This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that, well, has nothing better to do on a Sunday afternoon. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, Dr. Nirban Mahati for a special mailbag episode. Good day, Doc. How are you? I am very good, Captain. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Good to see you here on a Sunday. Virtual Sunday. Virtual. <laughs> yeah, well, it's Friday morning. But it's Sunday somewhere. You know, I'm looking forward to you flying me in a rocket here on, <laughs> on Sunday to record the podcast. You don't want to get any rocket I, I build, mate. I'll give you just quietly. Okay, fine. I wouldn't do that if I were you. We are going to get stuck into a special mailbag. We've got so much mailbag, mate. We're going to get through as much as we possibly can. On Friday, I neglected to mention our socials. And our socials, the, the cool kids say socials. It's short for Oof, social media. I'm, I'm, I'm cool like that. I'm on Instagram, mate. I've, I'm with it. I'm, I've got, I'm with the kids. You're with the happening are you times. On, are you on TikTok yet? Well, my daughter is on TikTok. She's on TikTok. How's She's that going? T- oh, I don't know. I really find that whole platform <laughs> a little bit on the, I don't know where it stands. <laughs> yeah. So funny. So we, we both have young children. Or, you know, getting older now, but uh, children anyway. Um, so a couple of funny stories during the Massive tangent to start the episode. Um, a couple of funny stories during the week. Oh, a, have you sure daughter ever watched Teen Titans Go? I, I I don't know, but I'll right. have to ask. I avoid it. Um, it's 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 kind of like it's it's kind of funny, and they they do a good job of making kids jokes and adult jokes, so that parents will actually bother watching. They did a whole funny spoof episode on the sharing economy, which is just very very funny. Talking about the fact that it, everything was being they were renting out rooms and body parts, and it was it was just very very funny and a kind kind of nice sort of satire social take. Have you heard of Dude Perfect, speaking of other things? No. So YouTube, Dude Perfect, as you'd imagine it's spelt. These guys have more YouTube subscribers than the NBA. They made their, they made their name doing trick shots with basketballs and golf balls and all sorts of really it's, – it's actually really quite cool. My son is obsessed with the thing and it is just – in terms of socials, this thing is just off the charts cool but also just has um, – apparently these guys are worth like tens of millions of dollars just from doing trick shots on YouTube videos. That sounds fascinating. We're in the wrong business. Yeah. <laughs> None of that's got anything to do with our, our mobile our mailbag, but it does have a lot to do with socials, which is what dragged me down that sordid and horrible path. The uh, If you want to get in touch with us, where will I start, mate? I'll start with Instagram. Are you on Instagram yet? No. I'm going to keep asking you. You can hit us up on Instagram. I'm at TMF, as in The Motley Fool, at TMF Scott P, or The Motley Fool is at The Motley Fool AU. You can leave a comment, see some of our posts, leave us, uh, send us a direct message if you want. Questions, comments, or feedback, always welcome. You can also, I'm going to I'm gonna leave the best to last, mate. You can also jump on Facebook. I'm Scott Phillips Money, all one word. And The Motley Fool is The Motley Fool Australia. Surprise, surprise. I know. How do we come up with that, Doc? Just creativity. Oh, we are, we are very creative. We are creative geniuses. Yeah, we are awesome. So if you're on Facebook, again, comment on our post, leave us a message, send us a direct mail. Uh, or... Twitter, which Doc is on. So if you want to talk to Doc, at Anirban Mahanti, or one word, at Anirban Mahanti, I'm at TMF Scott P, and The Motley Fool is at The Motley Fool AU. Again, super surprising. Hit us up on one of those, have a chat, leave us a comment, ask us a question. We love getting them. We love answering them. And also, if you like the old school, as I regularly say, info at fool.com.au is a great way to send us an email that'll go to our member services, Fools. They will flick it our way and make sure we get it and we can answer it on the show. So please get in touch. As we always say, we love hearing your questions and comments. Frankly, we're doing an episode here on Sunday afternoon, stuck in the studio, virtual Sunday anyway, um, because we love doing it. Mate, first question for this time mm-hmm. is a question for Phil, from Phil, sorry. Phil says, hi, Scott and Doc. 
Thanks for answering my previous question. It definitely put my mind at ease. That's good news. I am interested in both of your thoughts on recycling companies and the future prospects of them in Australia and the world. The reason I ask is because I saw an interview with Twiggy Forrest and he was very passionate about the topic and had a lot of good ideas as a successful businessman like Twiggy should we be following his lead. Thanks, Phil. Doc, what do you say? Recycling companies, yay or nay? You know, I, I like the idea like of recycling companies and right. how it can be beneficial to We're world. We're actually recycling and the company, right? I mean, companies doing recycling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> recycling just, companies that <laughs> that recycle stuff. Just being clear, just being um, clear. Go on. Uh, yeah, so I like that idea. Yep. I know that um, the one of the co-founders uh, of Tesla and its former uh, CTO, um, uh, forgot his name now, Strubble, I think Strubble. He has a recycling company, mm. recycling stuff, I think recycling batteries or battery, oh, you know, cool. uh, lithium ion batteries and stuff like that. So uh, this is, this is, but I haven't yet found one mm. company that I think is interesting or worthy of investing. So I, this is an area that I think is interesting, but I don't know of many companies that are, um, that, that are worthy investments in my opinion, at least at this point. So, I mean, you know, interesting, but I don't know, is would probably be the, the correct answer. Yep, I'm going to share that thought, mate, very quick. I'm going to try to get through a heap of marmots, so I'll keep it quick this time. Um, I agree completely. Sims Metal is one in Australia that's had a terrible track record of trying to recycle iron. Um, it fluctuates wildly with the commodity price, so you think it's a recycling business. Effectively, investors and the market treats it as a substitute for the original raw material. Um, similarly, paper recycling, I listened to a Planet Money podcast episode a few months ago where the recycling company is actually paying people to take some of the paper off them because they've got so much of it. So I don't know these are great investment ideas. I wish they were. Um, like many people, it'd be good for the environment if we had more recycling. I completely agree with that. The economics of the business, though, aren't necessarily the same as what we wish they would be. Um, I would stay well and truly clear until you know for a fact, uh, or at least for reasonable certainty, um, that these things are going to be profitable. My next question is from Howie. I'm going to ready to listen to the sound effect. That didn't really work, really. It was supposed to be a bell kind of sound. I hit my keys against a, a How about this soft one? drink bottle. Uh, no, we'll work on that. Uh, For those who don't know, I've, I've got actually two Allen keys, big Allen keys, and I want to use that to make, you know. Oh, we, nice. are, we are bringing the high production values. You don't get that sort of stuff from any other podcast, I guarantee yeah. it. How many podcasts have Allen keys? Or, or I've Coke, got one, two, or three, Coke bottles four, and keys. I've got like five of various sizes here. For the record, Doc didn't bring them and they were actually already in the studio. Mate, that is very funny. I love that. All right. Uh, Howie, let's move on. Howie says, hi, Scott and Doc. Thanks for answering my previous question on the podcast. I have another one if it's worthy of a discussion. To quote your number one investor, Mr. Buffett, he has said he'll leave 90% of his money when he dies in a simple, low-cost S&P 500 index fund. Absolutely true. So my question is, what are your and Doc's thoughts on this? And is there advantage of an index fund over an ETF that would also track the index? Also on the same line, what is the advantage of purchasing an index such as the Spider S&P ASX 200 over, say, a Vanguard ETF when both obviously have the same companies within? Thanks, mate. Hoey. Doc, index um, fund versus ETF. So, I mean, I mean, to... I'm reading this as, I mean, you know, there is a fund version of it, which is like basically investing with the fund manager. And then there is a tradable version of that, which is basically the ETF with the, with the unit trust, I guess, units. Let's break down some jargon, mate. ETF stands for? Exchange Traded Fund. 
which right. does so, exactly what it says on the tin, right? Yeah, which is basically the the fund that trades, the fund version, <laughs> the version that trades on the stock market and therefore has <laughs> a, has plenty of liquidity yeah. and and so on and so forth, right? So uh, I I would interpret Buffett's comment as meaning that he's would be happy to put it on an ETF, for example. I think that's uh, exactly right. So the the ETF is just a an exchange traded version of exactly the same thing. Um, I don't know of any good reason to invest in the fund rather than the ETF, with the exception that the fund often, and Puffett doesn't have this problem, often allows for regular incremental deposits with no brokerage. So if you're going to contribute 100 bucks a month or something, and you can do that without brokerage, there may be some benefits in using the fund, the managed fund version, the non-exchange traded version. Uh, If you have sufficient capital that you're investing each time, I just don't see any reason you wouldn't use the ETF. Yeah, so so just to clarify, the most bro- brokers in the US now don't charge a brokerage fee. <laughs> that's but, true, that's yeah. right. So does, that even doesn't matter. Right. I think most of these funds have actually like near zero fees or the yeah. ETFs have near zero fees. So I mean, it's as cheap as it gets to invest. Um, I guess Here the though, only- there still is. So for, for someone looking at a, an ASX listed yeah, ETF, which Sky is, there is still some brokerage. There's difference. still some fees. Yeah. Uh, I think the only bigger difference might be that I think with the with the fund, you can actually set up a schedule to invest, you know, put 500 every month or put 1,000 yes. every month and yes. invest. Whereas here, you actually physically have to do the act so of putting, you know, the money in and then yeah. buying, right? And so there's a real benefit in that. Yeah. So, so I think, yeah, that, you know, um, in index side, really, there's not much of a difference, I think. And then the other part of the question is, yeah, uh, what's the difference so you, between... I think you might have already given this one away, but what's the difference between a, a, a spider, which is run by is BlackRock? Yeah, BlackRock. SPDR, right, yeah. you'll see, so they pronounce it spider. The BlackRock S&P ASX 200 or the Vanguard ETF, which is code VAS, What's the difference? We're both so have the there's same a slight companies. difference here. Uh, the one slight difference is well, there are a couple of reasons. One, they're different providers. So mm-hmm. one is a BlackRock fund, the other is a Vanguard fund, yes. both available <laughs> as an ETF. Yep. They have slightly different uh, um, structures in terms of fees. Vanguard is basically as low as possible. BlackRock is also reducing as much as possible. But I think you know uh, probably the Vanguard will win in terms of fee structure. Mm-hmm. There's another difference. I think uh, as far as I know. Uh, if I remember this correctly off the top of my head, the Vanguard ETF is actually ASX 300. Correct. So it, it, it well takes the top 300 companies by liquidity and market capitalization and so on and so forth, mm-hmm. uh, whereas the other one is ASX 200. So I think you get a little bit more diversification with the 300 uh, because you get you know some of the smaller companies and some of the higher growth companies that show up in the 300. My own preference would be to take the 300 over the 200 oh, okay. l- largely because I think you get a little bit more, you know, it's just a little bit because the, you know, the overall concentration mm-hmm. is still the same, but I think I would think that the VAS would do slightly better. Makes sense. I um, I think it's a really good point, mate. I can't argue with any of that. I think the fund provider choice is largely... Uh, look, I don't know, mate. I think I would probably prefer to choose the lower fee over the broader index if I was given the choice, over over the, the fullness of time. Is it going to invest for 20 or 30 years? Would you go for the broader diversification or the lower fee given the choice? Well, in this case, the lower fee is the broader index. True, true. But in terms <laughs> uh, of making your yeah, choice, but, yeah, which, yeah, you, if- which would you prefer? Um, it really depends on, I guess it depends on what is the difference in terms of returns mm. one would expect versus what is the fees, right? right. I mean, if the, fee, so if the fees are significant, I would take the lower fees, right? Mm. Uh, but if the fees are really tiny, then probably I look for this, you know, if I can get an out edge with the better return. But yeah, I, I mean, paying lower fees matters, I think. <laughs> Very good. Let's move on. Question from Turnerator also on Instagram. I'll save the sound effects this time. Maybe. No, 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 oh, don't. No, no, son. Leave the Allen keys. To oh, Leave I was going to get the Allen keys. keys. I mean, you know. <laughs> All right. He says, hi, Scott and Doc. Stake recently changed their business model. Stake being the US broker out of Australia doing fee-free or brokerage-free transactions, making their money on the foreign exchange. Stake recently changed their business model to now being a subscription service. 
Originally, the service offered free of charge unlimited trades as well as fractional shares. Now, fractional share is for 100 bucks, you can buy one-tenth of a share of a $1,000 company, for example. It's a fractional share. They took a percentage of the foreign exchange as well as the market spread to make money. However, their greed has taken over. This is Turnerator's words, not mine. Um, you now have to pay $9 a month to trade fractional shares and to have unlimited trades. A farce indeed. The entire draw of stake for me is to be able to access the American market fractionally and also with free brokerage. Apparently now this business model doesn't seem to be working, so they're pivoting to charging their users. Do you think with the advent of commission-free trading in the States, it's a matter of time before a big bank here steps up and claims the vacuum that stake has left? Love to hear your thoughts. Full on. Doc, you are the uh, US trading guru here. I have a few US shares, but don't trade anywhere near as frequently as you do. Your thoughts on what's changing with stake and some other options? Well, that's interesting, actually. I was not aware of this change, so that's interesting to know. Um, clearly, I mean, uh, without knowing the details, I, if I had to guess, I would say this is a, uh, this is a sustainability type of thing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> if, you, if you charge monthly, it's, um, it's a regularized stream. Everybody loves a subscription business model. Mm-hmm. Investors love a subscription business model. <laughs> um, and uh, business owners love a subscription business model because of the regularity mm-hmm. of, the, of the money coming in. Yep. Um, yeah, but I mean, you know, I can see how this can be a problem if you are trading smaller amounts and therefore you're paying, you're actually in effect paying up a lot in uh, right. in in fees, which is eating into your returns effectively, right? So mm-hmm. that, that's, that's, I think, a problematic thing. Yeah. Look, if anybody's trading, oh, no, I shouldn't use the word trading. Uh, if anybody ha- wants to, over time, have a substantial amount of money invested in U.S. stocks, then um, it makes sense to actually have a proper U.S. broker, like, you know, Charles Schwab or... Uh, TD Ameritrade or interactive brokers or something like that. Mm-hmm. With those, you actually get the zero commission right. Uh, trades, right? Um, now, some of those, these guys might have actually pretty high minimum nowadays, mm. especially with Charles Schwab having yeah. retreated out of Australia. That's crazy. Um, it's like a 10 grand minimum to fund the account or something, isn't it? Somebody told me it's actually 25 grand. Oh. So it used to be three grand. Yeah. So this is almost like basically saying we don't want <laughs> additional accounts. Thank you very much. Uh, that sounds uh, like it, doesn't it? Yeah, it just sounds like that. So I mean, uh, some you know, you know yeah. what really surprises me is as exactly as uh, mm. has been said. Why hasn't a big bank tried yeah. or some other person tried to do, you know, come into the space and think, and maybe it's the market is just not mm. big enough to uh, cause that kind of disruption. Yeah, so that's it, mate. So yeah, those are my thoughts. Mm. Um, yeah. Look, I will add to that a little bit. I look. So here's the. I, I looked up the pricing on stake. So to be to be clear, and I should say by the way, we have a kind of a, a quasi relationship with stake. Just to be really really transparent, um, we have no interest in them. They have no interest in us. I don't believe money's ever changed hands. We did use them as a uh, service alternative for people who are looking to trade U.S. stocks when we launched a U.S. service last year, mid last year. Mm-hmm. Um, we used their video. They've used our video as saying they're good guys. I think that's also true. Uh, so just to completely disclose that up front to, to contextualize anything I say next, um, looking at their website, they still have a $0 a month product, which is two free trades a month, um, and then $5 a trade thereafter. For many people, that still might be enough, by the way. So that's the first thing. Second thing is their nine dollar a month is unlimited. Uh, sorry, it's free until July twenty twenty. So again, a few months worth of that. But of course, after that, you're kind of stuck. That is unlimited free trades. So two trades a month for nothing, or nine dollars a month for unlimited free trades and fractional shares and a whole lot more on top of that. Um, 
so that's just for just for clarity and just for, for kind of filling in some detail there. I the, the problem we have in Australia is, frankly, as Doc's already mentioned, the market's way too small for anyone to bother or care about, right? So Charles Schwab, one of the biggest brokers in the US, don't want our money badly enough to you know take small investors. They want it only if we're large enough to, frankly, generate some value. And while I am the first person to say, don't pay fees, you don't need to, I'm also not exactly surprised that Charles Schwab is saying, well... You guys in Australia, you're gonna you're gonna put you know a couple of grand in. I've got to have a customer service team and deal with a whole lot of that. I don't really want the small accounts, and the market's too small to believe that it's worth staffing twenty four seven for little accounts, all that kind of stuff. Now, would I like them to? Yes. Do I blame them for not doing it? Well, not if it's not profitable for them. So I'm kind of caught between a rock and a hard place here. If you have the money to, to fund an account, I think that makes some sense. If you don't, um, stake is probably still around the cheapest option. I think, Doc, if you're gonna make a couple of trades with a couple of grand, I think. Nine bucks a month sucks from a, from a personal perspective. By the same token, if you trade twice a month for for a year, that's twenty four trades for a hundred bucks. Um, call it five bucks a trade among friends. If you're with Comsec, you're going to pay what's it now with Comsec fifty bucks or something like that. That's pretty high. Yeah. Um, NAB trades probably the same. ANZZ trades probably the same. Uh, again, Schwab is much cheaper. But you've got to have the money to, to fund the account. So, uh, look, I. I, it's a really, really difficult one if you're just building up a US trading account. I think you should invest in the US. Uh, for some people, it, maybe it's worth using stake. Maybe it's worth using one of the big guys if you're going to buy, make one US transaction every three months with Comsec. You do it for a few years, so you've got more than 25 grand, then, then move your money across. You can move the shares directly, not just the um, the, the funds you'd have to sell to, to move them across. So there's look, there's different ways of doing it. I think that's probably how I'd... Take do it, Doc. Do you have if you were starting now with a couple of grand in the back pocket, you want to invest in the US? How would you do it? Yeah, like I think that's probably reasonable. I mean, um, I have an account with another company called Saxo oh, right, um, uh, Saxo Capital Markets. Now, one of the I mean, they have very low fees for um, mm. uh, across the markets, relatively speaking. Yeah. One of the things though that to keep in mind is they actually charge an account keeping fee, <laughs> which they all uh, get you. They are somehow, yeah. which is a percentage of you know all the small. I think it's like point one two percent, but yeah. think of point one two percent of any decent amount is actually quite a bit of money going out, right? Um, so it's effectively another quasi fee. Yeah. Uh, for you know whether you call it trading fear. so that's an, an option. I like your strategy. Like you know, start an account with someone. You can then transfer those shares over. Yeah. It still costs some money, I think, sometimes to transfer the shares because there's mm. paperwork involved. Uh, it messes up your uh, transaction information and things like that. But yeah, yeah, I, mean, yeah. I think that that's that's I think that's what I would do. Yeah, I, I think I think I probably agree. There are other brokers that do um, let you trade. You know, in the US, um, I said Comsec do it, Nabtrade do it, Westpac do it. Interactive brokers we've talked about is really cheap, but incredibly not user friendly at all. I wouldn't actually recommend them unless you would desperately want to do it. Um, uh, plenty of others. So just yeah, just just be just be mindful and, um, and and do it. I think I'd probably pay up. I think I'd probably save a bit more, pay up a bit more in brokerage. If you pay fifty bucks a trade for a two thousand dollar purchase, that's two and a half percent. It's pretty ugly, but it's not terrible. And if you're going to build a, as we talked about yes or Friday, sorry, the habits of, of investing well, if you make some you know, long-term investments for that sort of money, eventually you'll have more than 25 grand. You can start then make some different choices. Will it cost you more in brokerage than you should have to pay? Yes, absolutely. In the absence of any alternatives, that still might be the best option, I think. I think, I think. Uh, again, stake for a hundred bucks a year is probably also, again, is it ugly? Does it hurt? Yes. <laughs> is it a terrible option? Probably not. Let's not to get started. Mm-hmm. All right, mate. Next question is from Jeremy. But first... Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Jeremy says, hello, gents. Investing in the share market or in property to me seems like holding an asset without contributing to society or the economy. 
I like this question. For example, Scott often says avoiding buying unethical company shares has little positive ethical effect. And I won't go over the reasons why. Listen to our previous couple of podcasts if you want some thoughts on that one. But it's undoubtedly true. Your money makes no difference at all when you invest in so-called ethical companies. My question is then, what are some accessible ways to invest that would have an impact? And are they more risky or lower profit? I imagine providing capital for a startup would be one way to do this, but it would be less accessible as the share market. Still loving the show, full on. He says, please, P.S., please use my first name only for the pod. Please and thanks. Well, luckily I did, Jeremy. <laughs> oh, could have been ugly, couldn't I? Could have at this point we'd start yeah, I again. I think so, yeah. So, our listeners will be surprised, mate, to know this is not an edited podcast. This is definitely not edited. I mean, it uh, comes across so well, I imagine they think there's lots of production well, I values. I'm not so sure about what I said, but yeah. <laughs> well, then there's the other case, so maybe they don't. Uh, we, we do this in one take, believe it or not, with the exception of last week where we did it three times because the machine uh, broke. Yeah. <laughs> but, Jeremy, so luckily I didn't use your surname. We don't have to do this all again. Doc, if you want to make a positive impact with your investment dollars, what can you do? Well, you know, this is a, this is a hard question. I mean, the, the the stock market is effectively a secondary market. Like, I mean, okay, I'm yeah. going to caveat that to some extent. Like, I mean, some companies still invest, you know, are on the stock market and they raise capital on the stock market. Right. So, I mean, you can, to some extent, influence that by buying stocks of those companies. Effectively, you can provide direct capital to companies. Like, you know, like a share placement plan, for example, is an example. Yeah. If, well, I think it has a minimal impact that's uh, overall because yeah. I think most of the seeding is already done at the venture stage. Um, the other thing is that you know you one might want think that you know you want to provide uh, you know employment and all these options and you want to create these new companies, but VCs probably don't want to take <laughs> our money at that stage, right? <laughs> and those companies that don't get VC money, you probably don't want to invest in them. <laughs> they probably are um, poorer quality uh, investments overall, and that's why they, you know there's a lot of VC money floating around. So VC being venture capital, um, and yeah, so. I I don't know, really. I mean, start a small business is is contributory to the economy and, you know, your local society and so on. But not everyone, again, is going to start a small business. And, you know, I can understand that. Um, yeah, those are, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a hard one. Unless somebody is an entrepreneur and they are starting a business and creating jobs and so on. I mean... You know, what I like to say is that, you know, I want the best entrepreneurs to do the job of yep. that instead yep. of everybody trying to do it because that, you know, everybody trying is actually not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Look, I, this, I, I love this question, Jeremy, because it's exactly the right next question in the sequence, right? If we start by saying investing in so-called ethical companies makes no difference, and it doesn't, with the very, very small exception that Doc says of companies raising money in secondary offerings, um, capital raisings, as we like to call them, to some degree, those companies need funding and you can have a, a very, very minor impact at the margins on the cost of that funding, whether you engage or don't engage in it. If they have to desperately try harder to find more people, then you know that, that kind of makes a small difference, very, very small difference. Um, here's the thing. You, you, impact investing is really hard. So impact investing is what they call them, the investing you're doing for a particular purpose. Here's my thinking with that. If an idea is good enough, it doesn't need so-called impact investing, right? Venture capital, venture capitalists are greedy enough and, and good enough at their jobs. If something's going to make money, they will fund it, I guarantee you. Whether it's a coal mine or a wind farm, they will throw money at it if it's going to make money. If it's not going to make money or not going to make enough money to justify their investment, then you're kind of in the space of you're choosing to make lower returns than you otherwise could make. You're, you're deliberately sacrificing returns to have that impact you're trying to make over and above what someone else would do. In other words, 
the stuff that's already going to make money doesn't need funding because the, the capitalists are going to chase that stuff. What you're really talking about is adding your value, adding your wealth, adding your input to the next level of ideas that otherwise wouldn't be funded at all. And again, as I said, the problem is they're not going to be funded because they're not going to make any money or may not make any money. So you're in a very risky or lower return space by doing that. I got to say, for most people, I just I don't think it's where you want to be. And not because I don't care about the environment, I desperately care about the environment. But I I don't know that if it's that questionable an investment, you run the risk of a either losing everything or b making a, a really crappy return. Again, are you better off taking some of your profits and redeploying that to a charity or to something else? I dare say you probably are. And so this is a really unsatisfactory answer, but. For the most part, lock lock in the gains however you make them and then use that wealth for good. The What If founder, Graham Wood, um, who founded whatif.com, he then sold it. He spent a whole lot of money on things like starting, I think he funded The Guardian for a little while in Australia. He, and again, whether you like that or not, you know, he used that for philanthropic reasons. He's funding a whole lot of development in Tasmania of all places. Um, you, you know, there are great ways of using your now. We're not all Graham Wood. We're not going to make hundreds of millions of dollars, but he's used the, the money he made from a... Um, ethically run for what it's worth, but a for-profit business to go and fund some good, positive change elsewhere. I still think that's probably the best way to do it. Now, there are some options. There are things like green bonds where companies or organizations, sorry, buy things like land to, put, to plant more trees. That's definitely a net positive. And if you add money to that, they can probably buy more land. Now, the returns are probably pretty small. You may feel good about that and better about that. And that is definitely something where extra money does go to extra assets. So that's what you're looking for. If you're looking for impact investing in that sense, what is it that you're adding money to that goes to producing more of something rather than simply changing the price of it? If I'm raising $100, I can offer whatever return I want to offer. Now, the more people throw money at me, the lower return I get to offer. So if Doc wants to throw me $100, I'll say, well, I'll give you 5%. If the guy next door says, well, I want to throw you $100 too, I'll say, well, what about 4%? If he takes it, then great. He gets a lower return, I get the money. If no one wants to give me the 100 bucks, then I start saying, well, I'll give you 10%, 15%, 20%. Someone give me the money. So that's, but the amount of money I'm raising is going to be the same regardless. In this case, if you can contribute to an asset being purchased, like land for trees, for example, or carbon credits or something else, that's a really, really positive way to do it. There's a whole lot of charities out there, as I said. I, let's look into the kind of charity thing. Um, for what it's worth, our family um, has a yearly subscription of a thing called Green Fleet, which offsets the carbon emissions of our cars. Is that investing? No, uh, but they're planting trees to offset that carbon emission. I feel pretty good about that. So there's ways of contributing to a, to a charity or to, a, to an organization that is going out and doing extra things. And the more money they get, the more they can do. So whether it's a charity or, or some version of a green bond or something, that's one kind of possible option you've got. Impact investing is possible, but it's high risk and generally speaking, lower return. I'm not convinced that that's a place you want to play as an individual investor. Doc, any thoughts on that one? I think you've covered it all. Very good. The good thing is, by the way, uh, we got a. Um, I'll, I'll hold that one. Actually, we've got another, got another another bit of good feedback for us, mate. So I'll, I'll hold that. Next question comes from Nico. Nico says, "Hi, Scott and Doc. I'm currently trying to buy some international stock, but it's not covered by my international NAB or Comsec accounts. For comparison's sake, and not after specific advice, one example is it's a gold company listed on the London Exchange. I would like to buy about two thousand dollars worth. How sh- how much should a trade like this cost? I'm happy to pay a little bit more in fees up front. So I'm a long term investor." but I want to avoid any ongoing fees that eat up my returns. I'd also like an account that gives me access to Hong Kong and Canadian exchanges. Do you have any recommendations for an easy-to-use from Australia international broker with minimum fees? Also, are there any potential pitfalls I should be aware of? This is kind of like the question we just had, but a little bit different. If you want to trade in London, Canada, and Hong Kong and avoid fees, what do you do? 
Well, you can't avoid fees. <laughs> Few, <laughs> fees are almost unavoidable. Yeah. But yeah, as I said, so, so the one of the reasons I set up the capital uh, Saxo Capital <laughs> Market account was that you know I'm you know I have, I have some interest in Asian companies, mm-hmm. um, and just you know some interest in, in you know European companies, and this this is one platform that gives you access to essentially almost all of the developed market. Um, that was the reason. So, I mean, you can use a platform like that that will give you access to most of these markets. It's, you know, it's not free because, you know, there's that account keeping fee that you're paying and then you're paying uh, a small amount of the brokerage fee is quite, uh, quite um, manageable. So that, that, that's that. I think that's one way to do it. Um, what else? In terms of, you know, how much the fee, you know, again, like, you know, say it'll... You don't want to pay more than one or two percent of the amount you're buying in 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 fees. Otherwise, you're really giving up a lot in in fees. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's sort of my rough rule of thumb. Yep. I like this question. I like your answer, Doc. I, I think if you're a frequent trader or a frequent investor, well, I don't mean trader here. I don't mean trading back and forth. I just mean you're trading infrequently. Uh, I would say go for a higher fee with no ongoing fee because you don't know. As you've already said pay monthly fees month after month after month after month for a trade you made five years ago. Um, so, you know, prefer the higher fee over lower fees if you have the choice. Um, most brokers, I do have inactivity fees and stuff like that. So just just be really, really careful. I think your directed brokers is probably the best for all those all those exchanges. I think, yeah, you can, yeah, but, but yeah. I, I, just, I, just, I just find it harder to uh, to say go to Interactive Broker Lodge yeah. because, you know, it, it's, it's just, I think yeah. there's a lot of use, getting used to involved with Interactive Broker. It is definitely yeah. one of the lowest fee platforms out there. Yeah. Um, Nico, I, I, my other question, mate, would be, I'd, I'd probably just say for everyone, this is not, gen, not personal advice, for everybody, if you're making um, smaller transactions in international companies, I would probably ask a couple of questions. One would be, and this is a rhetorical question for you to think about for yourself, do you really want to spread your analytical efforts that thinly that you're looking for companies in all these different exchanges? I wonder where you're getting the information or the advice or the ideas from, how much time you're spending doing it. If they're genuinely great ideas and you've, you've got that much time and effort to scour that many great ideas across that much of the world, then awesome. I don't. I do this for a job. Um, I haven't looked at the Hong Kong or London exchanges, I think, ever, Doc. I don't know if you have. Um, there's just too much else out there to go with. So I, I kind of think, you know, again, if you want to do it, by all means, do it. Like, I'm not telling you not to. I'm just, I'm just curious as to whether you think you genuinely have an advantage in those markets and those companies. Um, and for smaller, large amounts of money, two grand's a lot of money, but, you know, over an investing career, is that money not better off investing in Australia or in the US? And again, as Doc said before, um, investing in the US, on the US market, you can obviously or often access many, many international companies. So the bigger um, US, or sorry, UK, European, Asian companies often have listed American depository receipts, they call them, um, that give you access to those companies. So that's probably what I think of. I think I probably err on the side of maybe just giving it a miss quite honestly. Unless it's such a great deal, you definitely want to be involved for the long term. I'd probably redirect the two grand to an Australian or US investment, I think, Doc. Yeah, I, I think I agree. Good news is from Nico also. Also, in regards to a previous message, I ended up getting 3.23% with my current my state loan with no transfer fees. Pays to ask. Thanks for your encouragement over the last year. How good is that? 3.2, if you're not already, hashtag get a better rate. Call your bank. Get a better rate. I promise you they don't need the money, as I say every single time, more than you do. You deserve the lower rate. Call your bank. I tell them that my state's giving me 3.2%. See if you can beat it. And if you do, let us know on the socials. Let us know what you're getting so we can encourage other people to save some money as well. More encouragingly, at least for me, Doc, Nico says, I would still be waiting for a crash and would have missed out on my current 19% return. By being invested, Nico was worried about the market crashing and so... Being uninvested, not being invested over the last year, 2019, 
The market was up about 25%, Nico. So that would have been a lot to lose by not being invested last year. Always be invested is our rule. Ride the waves. Next question, Doc. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. This one comes from Gabriel. He says, hi, Scott and Doc. Hope you find some time for this question on your amazing podcast. See, Gabriel, you know how to get a question answered. I've been a bit, I've been a bit lax on the other questions so far. Yeah, I know the. We pra- haven't got any egregious praise. Yeah, I know the praise is very important. We love the praise. Oh dear, dear. Lift your game, people. We're not a charity. Well, we're doing this for free. I suppose we are a charity to some degree. Anyway, we have feelings. We have, you know, we, we have families and feelings, and but just just be nice. Give us some praise. Come on, is it that hard? The praise is the fee. There you go. Gabriel has paid his fee, so he's getting his question answered. Yep. Hi, Scott and Doc. Hope you find some time for this question on your amazing podcast. I've been looking at Soul Pats recently, as I've heard you refer to them as the Australian Berkshire Hathaway, but I've noticed they have underperformed the ASX 200 over the last 12 months. As they have overperformed over any other longer time period, would you see this as an opportunity to buy in? And what do you think about this company at the moment, buy, hold, or sell? Looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Thanks, Gabe. In brackets, long-time listener. Good man, thank you. We appreciate your support. Do you want me to take this one, mate? Hey, you take it. <laughs> you know, a Soul Pats fan. So firstly, it's a recommendation of ours. Secondly, I own shares. So again, use the appropriate amount of salt. Uh, look, Gabriel, here's the... Timeframes are really funny. Doc and I have had this conversation. I don't have got a really great way of describing this on air or in, on, in writing yet, but I need to do it at some point. When we look at returns on stocks, we pick two arbitrary points, right? We say this time five years ago, one year ago, six months ago, 10 years ago, and we say, right, from that arbitrary point to now, here's what the shares have done. And they might be up 20%, down 20%. That, that point 10 years ago may be really, really, really relevant or actually might be completely relevant. For example, during the GFC, yeah, in 2017... You look back 10 years, things look really, you know, if your shares were flat against 2007 numbers, well, you haven't done very well. If you wait two years, the share price hasn't changed, but the 10-year-ago number goes a whole lot lower because the market crashed, as you might recall, in 2009. And so even if the share price of the asset you own hasn't changed, all of a sudden your gain looks massive because you've held it for another two years and the 10-year-ago number is lower. So it's not always necessarily about the, the price now. It can just simply be about which metric you choose to compare against. Now, you're not wrong to ask the question, Gabriel, and you're dead right. I'm just making the point that if you think about comparisons, they are by definition arbitrary. And the question is, was the 12-month-ago number the right number to compare against as much as is the current share price attractive? So generally speaking, I don't love using any charting. I don't normally look at past prices. As I said before, if the price is down 10%, some people say, oh, it's so much cheaper, let's buy. Other people say, oh, it's falling, why would you buy? And the reverse, when the share price are up, people say, oh, it's already up, I'm not buying. Other people say, oh, great, it's on the way up, let's buy now before it goes higher. That's so much psychology and a lot of investment uh, theory behind that, unfortunately, but that's the way humans are. All of that said, uh, Solpats has done very well. And I think if you think about the long term, absolutely the share price is important. Um, the good news is for Solpats, up over was up over 1, 3, 5, 10, and 15 years. So over multiple time periods, that's a good sign the company's doing well. Now, a year ago, the shares were really, really high. They, the, the shares aren't traded very often. And so they went from... 20 bucks to close to 30 bucks in really short time on absolutely no news. And so the fact they fell back kind of wasn't a super surprise. Now, again, did I expect it? No, or I would have sold it 30 bucks. So I'm not saying that we all should have known it, but it's kind of one of those things where I don't really look at the the price 12 months ago and say, oh, it's been terrible because or great because. Um, it's just the 12-month number ago was a 12-month number. The shares were high. That's fine. They're down now. It is what it is. Um, I think 
on balance, the shares are attractive at today's price, not because of where they were a year ago, just because I think based on the assets and the earnings, it's a pretty good price to pay for Solpat shares. I like the management a lot. They are uh, the fourth generation of the same family to run the business. They have a value investing mentality. Um, they're investing conservatively. They've paid dividends for, I want to say, close to 100 years. Um, and the dividends increased, I want to say, for 20 years. That, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bottom draw stock, right? It's not going to be a Tesla. It's not going to be an Apple. It's not going to be an Amazon. If you're buying it for that reason, you'd be very, very disappointed. It's a slow and steady wins the race kind of business. And as I said, it's outperformed over long time periods, as you've already mentioned, Gabriel, for very good reason. They just do the simple things really well. Um, on a you know year in year out, decade in decade out basis. So I like it. It's a buy for me. I own the shares. I bought some maybe a couple of months ago, Doc. Maybe three months ago, I think. Don't hold me to that. It was it was some point kind of you know towards the end of last year. Uh, I, I haven't bought any recently. I still like the shares. I would happily have anyone buy them in their portfolio at the current price. Again, not because they're screaming bargains, not because they're going to double overnight. Because I think they're a really really great bottom draw stock. Doc, I've been pretty comprehensive and monologued for a little bit time there. Anything else to add? Uh, no, I, I think, again, any investment like um, Solpat basically is an investment in, the, it's a conglomerate, so you're investing mm. in their ability to, you know, continue to invest wisely. Yep, and, if you believe, and if you believe that, then I think, you know, it's a good investment. I think, again, yeah, the point about looking forward is, is important, right? Can they invest, can they continue investing looking forward? If they mm. can, then they will do well. Very good. Question from Zach. Hi, Scott. I was wondering if you could ask Doc. Oh dear, do I have to ask the question? I hope it's a good one. Zach, you're um, Zach. Seriously, dude, you're killing me here. Um, funnily enough, this was all just just um interesting stat. This was sent at eleven oh five p.m. on the thirty first of December. Okay, Zach, I love the I love the commitment, mate, to investing at less than an hour before midnight on New Year's Eve when you could have otherwise been out drinking, partying, having your time, you've decided to email us instead, which is either a wonderful comment or a sad comment in your social life, Zach. So I'm going I'm to assume it's the former. Uh, thank you for sparing us a thought uh, at, a, at an hour to midnight on New Year's Eve. He says, hi, Scott. I was wondering if you could ask Doc his opinion on Bubs. Bubs being the you know, infant formula company, milk company. How does the recent sale of Bellamy's affect the thesis of Bubs? I know there is a demand for Australian infant formula from China, but does this change considering the facts? What sort of expectations does Doc have for a company like this? And you running a service differently to Doc, why are you not attracted to Bubs as an opposing point of view? Love the work you guys do. As a young fellow, I really appreciate you fools. Happy New Year's. Thanks, Zach. It's very kind. That one came in on uh, Twitter, I think. Doc, Bubs, do you like it? And how does the Bellamy sale affect your view? Uh, Zach made good question. Okay, so... <laughs> Uh, yeah, Bob's, I do like it. Um, uh, Kevin Gandia um, uh, and myself, we rec recommended this company uh, in Extreme, extreme Opportunities. Um, we, we like it for a couple of reasons. I think it, it's got a lot of growth happening in the goat <laughs> milk side, funnily enough. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, it has done a few. <laughs> it's done a few, few different things. It's basically uh, become more vertically integrated, which is slightly different from what Bellamy's was. Bellamy's was a brand play overall. Um, it didn't own the milk. Actually, funnily enough, a lot of the Bellamy's milk came from South America, um, and 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 people would would think that it's Australian milk. It's actually South American milk <laughs> that's been turned into. That's, that's uh, not on the ads. <laughs> that's not on the ads, right? I, I'm, I'm just pointing out. So it's so they've done a good job with the brand. Mm. Um, here they're building a brand around goat milk uh, in thesis being that goat milk is good for uh, you know goat milk is actually closer to human milk that babies drink and therefore it's good for mm. you know good as an infant formula um, 
there's a lot of demand in China. The thesis is relatively straightforward. There's a lot of demand in China. This can be, this is, you know, the margins are improving. This can be a high margin business. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's it's growing off a small base. So we, you know, we, we're likely to see some exponential growth. They've done some beautiful partnering in China, which is really important to navigate the Chinese uh, landscape. Mm. Um, so they've got, uh, y- you know, a fund with close ties to Alibaba, which has uh, invested in it. They've got Being Made, which is a big company out in China, as a partner as well. Uh, they've got Chemist Warehouse as a backer. So they've done mm. all those things, you know, strategically placing the brand. Um, yeah, I actually personally own the stock as well. Um, wh- what I'll say is that this is this is definitely a very high risk high reward type of stock it's a small company not yet profitable growing fast um looking into the chinese market trying to break into the chinese market and the other asian markets so yeah that's what that's what i think about it does the bellamy's uh, take over effect not really i mean bellamy's was uh, you know it, overall the infant formula segment should grow you know there's a it's, it's a com- competitive segment but i think the whole fact that this is growing off a small base and it's got all these partnerships to essentially get self space space and be able to sell via Tmall and things like that for example is is what counts so i think um yeah i feel good about it um but yeah i'd just point out that it's it's likely to be risky There's, they probably do capital raises because it's not yet cash flow positive interesting i so look as an alternative what's really fascinating doc and i agree on some stuff reasonably directly. Uh, Tesla is one. I'm happy not to own Tesla for different reasons. Doc is prepared to own it. Berkshire is another. We, again, have different expectations. There's also plenty of companies out there that we just simply don't own or buy in concept because we just have different focuses or different different um, perspectives or simply just in a universe of, what, 1,500 Australian stocks? We just haven't got stocks that are on the same page. Bellamy's was a recommendation of ours at Share Advisor before it was sold to the Chinese. Uh, we sold it. We recommended our members sell it um, as that deal was going through. Uh, I look stylistically for share advisor and probably me as an investor. I'm not as much an early stage investor as Doc is. Um, so I don't mind bubs at all. I, I think they've got a really cool point of difference. I think they're a decent chance of doing very well. Um, I'm just not kind of, you know, I'm not as cutting edge as Doc when it comes to making those investment decisions. If you look at the scorecards of extreme opportunities that he runs or share advisor that I run, I have a deal for you on EO later. So stay tuned for that. Um, you know, just very different stocks, very different approaches, very different perspectives. We have some companies in common, but not many. Um, that's just the way we, we, we operate. And again, it's not because Doc doesn't like mine or I don't like his. We just kind of start with a different framework of investing. We say, this is how I invest. These are the companies that meet that framework. Um, Warren Buffett has made a fortune over 55 years. One of our co-founders, David Gardner, is very much in the, I was going to say, the extreme opportunities mold. Maybe I should say it the other way around just to Make sure he doesn't get unhappy with you, Doc. Um, David Gunn is a high-growth investor, very similar to Doc's style, right? Doc has, Doc has been a, a fan of David's for a very long time. Both those guys have done extraordinarily well over long periods of time, doing something very, very, very different. I doubt there's any overlap at all. Both have done well. Um, equally, there are people who follow both those strategies have done badly because they've chosen stocks badly. So I, I, it's one way of just saying, look, just because we don't have the same view on the same company doesn't mean we're necessarily diametrically opposed. So... Bubs to me was just simply it's not a big enough or, or proven enough company yet for me to be interested. Not because I think it's terrible, just because I just haven't. I, as a filter, I tend not to buy those sorts of businesses. I, I was just going to, you know, maybe this is just horribly, um, you know, uh, 
casting things into <laughs> in, into frameworks. I like it. Um, <laughs> Not from it, but but uh, but but you know, like uh, so, so, like so Scott Phillips is and shared advisor. They can't. They can't. <laughs> are, I'm, I'm I'm very kind. They're like you know mid cap growth is sort of what I think of the style and the type of companies that, for example, ShareVisor looks at. ShareVisor does look at small companies occasionally, but, mm-hmm. you know, they would still look for it to be profitable and, you know, sustainably profitable and things mm-hmm. like that, even if it's a small company, right? And for that, they'd be happy to take it slightly lower growth if if, if, if available, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's mid-cap growth, really. It's not it's not large cap. So it's like mostly mid-caps and most of the successful companies are actually, you know, you know mid-cap and mid-cap by definition in the Australian sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and mid-cap is how I look at it. We at Extreme Opportunities are really more small cap growth, right? right and that, right, right. that basically moves down sort of in the in the market caps. And we are looking at $500 million or less mm-hmm. typically. There are some companies that we have overlaps on, uh, you know, and most of the time what happens is that the overlaps actually are, you know, where I think there is a price opportunity or there's been a sell-off or, you know, it's just a global opportunity and therefore, you know, the, the growth runways are long and therefore it sort of fits that multi-bagger type of thing. So if you're looking more for multi-baggers, uh, you know, they're not looking necessarily for like, you know, large multi-baggers. But what the, the flip side is that we would probably have a lower strike rate. By strike rate, I mean... Um, uh, the, the success relative to say the index mm-hmm. uh, or the benchmark that we are competing against, you know, uh, are at, at extreme opportunities we are basically trying to be right maybe four or five times in and at, at stock at share advisor they're probably trying to be right you know six times. Yep. So and, and, that, and that little bit makes a difference in terms of what uh, what you do, uh, how you invest and so on. So it's not necessarily that you know. Like I, I could disagree, but it doesn't make you know. If I disagree with with uh, Scott, it doesn't mean that he's wrong, right? Mm. So I disagree with a lot of stuff, and you know, I'm, <laughs> and, and I'm I'm wrong a lot of times. But you know, uh, I think we are I, an, an Apple or Tesla, and we all know how that's went. Well, well, yeah, but you know, the thing is that you know, uh, it just depends on you know. I I could be right fewer times, but I could still be okay, and he could right. be right more often, and right. still be okay, and you know, both you know, we can still work out even. So I mean, that that that's that's the long and short of it. And super important, right? Don't try and invest along someone else's. Style. If you're listening to this and you're like, you know what, I feel like DocStyle is right for me, then EO is right for you. And don't try and buy SA because you'll be disappointed by the lack of excitement or, or big out, you know, out, outcome, outside successes. Equally, if you're the sort of person who wants a bit more conservatism, a bit higher strike rate, EO will still do well for you if you follow it, but you'll be, it'll be harder to follow for you as an investor because you simply won't be as comfortable with the volatility or the style. So pick the service that you think is right for you um, is always the best advice. Yeah. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Made a question from Adrian as we come towards the end of this particular special Marbag episode. We've got a little bit to go, but you know, we're getting towards it. So savor it while you're here, which Adrian does, because Adrian says, Hi, Scott and Doc. Thanks for answering my question. I listen religiously while at work to maximize my productivity. I'm, ah. not, I'm not entirely sure um, how to answer that, Adrian. I'm, I'm glad you're listening. I'm not sure when it's really helping your productivity unless we're so boring that you have, you'd rather work. I'm, I'm not sure how that works, but that's a question for you and your boss, and we're just happy you listened. Thank you. He says, I wanted to get your views on Freelancer, as it hasn't been a profitable pick for me so far after a few years. He's some down 32%. And the float on the stock is fairly low. 
there are huge fluctuations in the price, particularly on the downside. We know that feeling. A director has topped up twice over the last month. And this is this was sent in December, so just kind of take your mind back about a month. A director has topped up twice over the month of December, and I still believe in the CEO and the new direction it is going. But my emotions are getting a hold of me and wondering if I should keep buying more to dollar cost average. Understand you can't provide personal advice, so the question is about more about your views on the company and how to know when you might be wrong when you can see the green shoots, but the market is saying no. That's a really, really, really great question, Adrian. You framed it perfectly. And so because it's a hard one, I'm going to get Doc to answer it. I was going to say, I was just thinking, <laughs> is this coming my way? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, Adrian, mate, I'm going to disappoint you a little bit here by saying, um, I'll, I'll answer the second part. The first part, you know, I really, you know, freelancers, <laughs> I have looked at a free, few times and, mm-hmm. you know, it's been on my like watch list or our mm-hmm. watch list, but it has never quite made it as a cut of a recommendation. It's... Mm-hmm. Um, for for different reasons, but so so I don't know the specifics right now to talk about that particular stock mm-hmm. at the moment, right? But I have a general theory or or, or thinking around uh, sort of you know the emotional part of the question, right? What do you do? So for number one thing I'll say is that it's hard, but you need to dissociate the share price mm-hmm. from the company. Yep. Uh, which is like, which is basically saying, well, that sounds pretty oxymoronish, <laughs> right? <laughs> so I, I think what you need to do is forget the, how the share price volatility, and you said it's a small float. So I mean, small float companies actually do have a lot of fluctuation in their share price, um, just, just by definition, because they're small float and less people are trading it. Mm. But if you believe that the company has a bright future and you have, you know, and, and it's not just belief, right? You have to have something to back it up mm. um, and something in the actions of the company or some sustainable, you know, something that shows you or something in the plan or something about the market or, you know, the, the market opportunity and the competitive space and things like that. Mm. Uh, so if, if you believe that and they can execute on that and then you think that this company has a future, which is much, much brighter, then of course, if the share price falls, that's, that's like a great thing, mm-hmm. right? However, the market is kind of not that dumb either, right? I mean, and I, and I say this because otherwise what happens is you could have what I call the, you know, the catching the falling knife sort of problem, yeah. right? The market, <laughs> the mar- if the market is punishing something, there is a reason behind it. Now, it can punish on the upside and the downside, right? It can punish a lot more uh, or mm-hmm. it can punish less. you got to figure that out. But money, the market is good at figuring out at least a kind of the direction, right? If it's bad news, they're going to, you know, they're going to give it a <laughs> solid yeah. uh, hammering. Uh, if it's good news, they're going to give it a, a, a pop, right? And they often tend to, you know, what what I think is the magnitude that that can differ, but I think the direction typically tends to be right. Um, if it was not th- that right, then I mean, you know, again, I'm not saying the market is efficient, but that's, that's true. So if the share price is falling, typically mm-hmm. that means that something about the strategy is not working, right? Now, has the market overreacted? That's something to think about. Mm-hmm. Is 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 the company sort of in a in a transition? Uh, then I think the the question really is: If it's a, is it a transition or a turnaround? Now, here's the important thing: right, most turnarounds don't turn. Mm-hmm. So, you know, do you believe it's going to turn? Right, all of those things I think you have to consider. So, if you believe the future is bright, then lower share price and averaging down makes sense. If the if you think the future <laughs> is uncertain, yeah, then it's a hold or maybe even it's, it could be a sell. Right. Yeah. I mean, again, you have to consider those things while making your decisions. Now, and the final thing I'll say is, uh, it is useful to think in terms of 
how big a position is. Like if, if, if the position is making you think about it and, it's, you know, you are thinking too much about it and it's like consuming you, that's probably too large, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? That's another reason not to add to something is like, well, it's, it's consuming you even if it is, even if it's a good buy, right? And that's, it's a psychological thing because you want to be, you yeah. want to be as an investor in control of your decisions, mm-hmm. right? Because that's, I think, how you actually get bad returns by not being in control of your decision-making process. I can't beat that, mate. I think that's right. You've got to separate the past share price performance from the current business and work out whether the business is worth less um, than it will be in the future, in which case you want to buy it. Don't ignore the market is my only other thought. Uh, as Doc said, the market kind of tends to get these things either right or at least the bear case is worth knowing and understanding. So if you if you're looking to average down, I'd be I'd be saying with why don't why doesn't the market agree with you? What does the market disagree about? And see if you can find somewhere online is a great place to go or just think through why could the market be right and I could be wrong and start from that point forward. I have no view on the company, unfortunately. I don't I don't follow it particularly closely. Um, I would I would be disinclined to add too much more to a smaller business that is not being rewarded by the market. And frankly, thus far, hasn't yet shown enough green shoots to really justify your faith. You, you may be better off waiting to see more results before you throw more money at something particularly if it gets a larger and larger part of your portfolio. If it's your best idea, you can make an argument for it, uh, but don't get sucked into throwing more money just because it's cheaper. The only question, the only thing you've got to do is turn a dollar into $2 over time. You don't have to make that dollar extra profit in the same company you've already lost some money on. And again, doesn't mean you can't, but you, you, the, across the entire universe of investment options, is that your single best idea for more money right now? If it is, maybe great. If it's not, then maybe think about putting the money somewhere else. How's that, mate? That sounds brilliant. I'm going to finish with a really, really cool email. And this is a longish one, so fair warning, but I want you to stick with me because I just I, I like I like the way this email is communicated. Now the, the, the correspondent has asked that we not use their name, so I won't. Um, this is kind of one of those good news stories, Doc, and I, I quite liked it. So let me let me just run through the, the email. We've got some questions as we go. So we're kind of going to do it. Uh, the questions have been asked in the body of the email. So I'm going to tell the story and, and we'll answer the questions as we go. We'll try and keep it quick. Um, it says, hi, Scott and Doc. Uh, if you decide to reply on the podcast, please don't use my name. We're not. First up, I'm a fan of yours. Well, thank you very much, um, so-and-so, Mr. So-and-so. I listen to your pods and I'm working through your back catalogue. No, I'm not just saying that, Scott. That's a bit... Why do you think I would say that? Anyway, most of your podcasts have been really enjoyable and entertaining. And if they stop being so, I expect a full refund. Well, I can promise we will pay you exactly back what you've paid for these podcasts if you don't like them. So uh, feel free to send us uh, the angry letters to somewhere other than us. <laughs> he says, I'm a member of Extreme Opportunities. Thanks, Doc. And I tried SA, but as I'm globally focused, I felt I had too many ideas to process, given I also subscribed to two Motley Fool US services and decided for now not to subscribe to SA Australia. Sorry, Scott. Mate, that is more than fine. David Gardner said this week on his podcast, if it's not working for you, don't join or don't stay. I can only echo that. So no dramas at all. If you're enjoying Doc and our US services, then I'm very, very happy that you're a happy fool. I'm a middle-aged man. I feel your pain, Scott. And I always have a laugh when you jokingly grumble about the questions from 20-somethings. They're not jokes. I'm genuinely grumbling. I'm grumbling too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like you fools are my investing brothers. Well, that's kind of cool. I share a laugh with you, get some tips, hear your words of caution, wisdom, and optimism. Yes, Scott, even your words, not just Doc's. I'm starting to feel like I'm the butt of the jokes here. I'm not sure about that. You've done this investing thing a lot. I've not. So much of what I'm doing reinvesting the foolish way, capital F foolish, is based on me trusting you guys, which I do, having verified your results and listened to you guys putting yourselves out there all the time. Here's to transparency, to which we say here, here. I'm a total newbie. I only started investing very nervously in early 2018 and have some questions I'd appreciate you helping me out with. 
I now have 33 stocks and ETFs or exchange traded funds. He says ETFs make up approximately 55% of the value of my portfolio. Don't judge me, Doc. ETFs consist of large cap, global focus, bonds, and property. These positions reflect how I started investing two years ago, and now with the help of you fools, I've started buying only direct stocks. Thanks to you fools more successfully now than when I was on my own. So here's the thing. Many of those direct stock positions make up only 0.5% through to 5% of the value of my portfolio. I'm aware you offer general advice only. Thank you. That's all we can do. And nothing is specific to my situation. All right, Doc, question one. I have lots of small positions, and I'm not sure if I should add more new companies or look at building up the more successful positions. What do you say? Okay, so this is an interesting question. You know, and again, a general comment, there's actually no one right answer for this, unfortunately, right? <laughs> <laughs> so we, in the full, we generally say, you know, uh, we think that 15 to 30 companies sort of gets you a diversified portfolio, assuming yep. that the 15 to 30 companies are diversified. You can't get <laughs> diversification by buying, say, five banks and two grocers, right? Right. Um, so, 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 the, so that's the thought. 15 retailers is not diversified. Yeah. Uh, I'll give him, I'll tell a little bit of a personal story here. When I sort of started, you know, my investing journey, my I had a lot of positions and um, over time I've bit, become a bit more concentrated but I'm not mm. that concentrated. I probably have like you know 30 odd you know companies 35 odd companies that I own but at one point I probably had 50 odd companies that um, uh, that I had. Um, so there's no right answer I think you can do well with both. Yep. Um, the the thing with small positions is is that if you're investing in like for example with EO I would say small positions are great because if the stock works out if it's a five bagger a small amount mm-hmm. of money would do you well. If it goes down eighty <laughs> percent, you'll yep. be happy that you yep. put in a small amount. Of money. This is actually not my line, but somebody else's line. Um, a fool called Tom Ingle. Uh, he says that all the time. And here's the other thing. <laughs> the other thing that I would I'd, I'd point out is with, with you can start small. This is to answer that ad ad portion. Mm. If a company is executing, don't be afraid to add on the way up, right? Mm. This sounds psychologically, it's difficult because you anchor on the price that you paid in the past. But if the company has is executing, is doing well, it's becoming, you know, it's becoming de-risked. The price, of course, is going to go up, right? Because right. the future value is probably is also going up. Um, and so therefore, on the way up, you can add. So you can build up positions over time. I almost mm. always start small with my positions, especially in small companies, uh, largely for that reason that, you know, I want to learn about the company. I want to understand the company. I want to take my time. And I want the thesis to see playing out. And if the thesis is playing mm. out, and if it's mm. got a wrong runway, uh, then I don't worry about it. Nice. I like that. I'm going to agree with all of that, mate. Um, the only thing I would say is I think I would have no more than you can keep track of. Other than that, I don't think you need to worry about how big or small they are. What I would say, though, is always add money, generally speaking, to your best idea at any point in time. If that's a new company, great. If that's an existing company, great. Um, You want to maximize the value of each new dollar you're adding to the investment allocation. Question two, should I sell down the ETFs where they overlap and repurpose that money elsewhere? Um, This is is a great question. Again, again, this is a comfort thing, right? A lot of people build the core of their portfolio using ETFs. Mm -hmm. And I think that's nice and great because it provides instant diversification. Now, as here's here's the thing, right? If you 
I'll just use like if you own Apple and Microsoft. Uh, sorry, not uh, yeah, Apple, Microsoft, and you know Amazon and something else, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Those are going to account for like forty percent of many ETFs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so if you're going to buy them right, separately right. and then own the ETFs, it's like a bit of a duplication. So you want to <laughs> you want to make sure that you don't have too much of that duplication happening. A little bit of duplication is probably okay because it just means that the weight of the individual holdings go up. Right. Um. So that's the that's the side about the overlap. I think yes, if the if the ETFs are overlapping, then that makes sense to not have the overlap because if they're overlapping, well, it's not really adding anything else, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of diversification, which is one of the key benefits of having ETFs. Yep. As I guess one becomes comfortable, I would say that you know you you want to own individual stocks if you believe that you want to beat the market, right? If you want to beat the market, then that's the way to do it. ETFs right. in general. I mean, you, even with ETFs, you can, depends on what you call the market here, but let's assume that the major market index, you're following the ASX, say, 300 or the ASX All Ordinaries, um, and then you want to do better than that, and you can do it by getting another ETF that is focused on something else, which could be a sector-specific or another index, right? Mm. But but in general, the individual stocks are going to help you beat the market, but if you want to do that, either you're following somebody's advice or you, <laughs> you know, so I think... Yep. As you become comfortable, that strategy makes sense. But I think, again, people should do whatever makes them really comfortable. Because I think that comfort thing is very important because that's how you're going to be able to deal with volatility. And I can assure you, if, if, <laughs> if, if one thing I can assure you is there's going to be a lot of volatility in the stock market. So you want to, have, you want to be comfortable in whatever, whatever you do. Yep. Uh, I agree. I think that's um, spot on. I think overlapping ETS make no sense unless you actually want the extra concentration. So if you've got overlapping, just cho- you know, know that's effectively what you're choosing. If this was one single ETF, would you want the weightings as they currently are? If the answer is yes, then keep them. If not, then you should absolutely sell them to get the weighting you're looking for. Question three, mate. Bond ETFs, are they a good or bad idea? Now, he also says, yes, despite what you say, I'm jittery about a correction and having to explain that to my wife. So, uh, he also then says, by the way, after that, of course, my horizon is until I die, as I get this as a long-term game. Bond ETFs with a wife who cares about corrections and volatility, what do you do? Well, like, so I don't have any bonds, right? I, I know that in some portfolios, people like to have bonds because it, it provides that, you know, lower volatility, but it, the lower volatility comes with lower returns. And right, so. that's the unfortunate part. So, yeah. I mean, <laughs> so it, it again... Uh, it really comes down to personal preference, right? I mean, if you really can tolerate the volatility, then I would tr- I would take the volatility and take the higher return, right? But if you if you really need that mm-hmm. comfort, then you know it's like bond is like getting it slightly better than term deposit type of return, right? Yeah. Um, so if you need that, by all means. But you know, <laughs> this is really like again, yeah. it really depends on what what one wants to do. Like I don't do it. But again, I can understand why somebody does it. I know people who do it. I know people mm-hmm. who don't do it. So, Yeah, I see no reason for bond ETFs at all, with the exception of the reason you rightly point out, which is you have either yourself or a family member who is going to freak out if shares fall. If you need to mitigate the size of falls, then something like that is a good idea. Um, just be careful about which bonds they're investing in. But if it's a broad bond ETF, I think that's probably okay. Uh, just know that it's going to cost you some return. Now, as I said before about lots of different things, sleep at night test. If you or your wife sleep better at night having some bonds in your portfolio, then by all means keep them. Um, I can't, I, yeah, I, I, I don't have any, nor does Doc. I wouldn't. Um, we just have to accept that volatility is the answer. Um, a little bit of without being condescending to your partner, a little bit of education. So something like the Vanguard uh, index chart. If you Google Vanguard index chart 2019, you can see a 30-year chart of the of the market, including the dot-com crash, including the 
um, GFC. Uh, if you can show your wife that's a look, went from here to here. Um, just you know, have as have as few bonds as your wife is comfortable with, and as many as you need to keep her comfortable is probably my answer. I don't mean that in any, in any meaningful, condescending, or, or critical way. Just literally, that's the reality. So um, I wouldn't have as many, more than you need, but you absolutely should have as many as you do need to make your life worth um, just just comfortable for both you and your wife. He says, my wife and I have savings and the share portfolio represents about 23% of our liquid assets. I have super and also salary sacrifice into it. My wife has nearly none. I earn less than the average wage. I'd like us to put more into our shares up to 30%, but my wife prefers closer to 10 or 15. Should we go to 30% or more or less in shares of liquid assets? Oh boy! <laughs> you just like putting these. Up. So again, I'm not. Hey, I'm not. I'm, I'm asking the questions here. I'm asking um, the questions again. It's a great question. Again, I think this really depends, right? I mean, so um, all almost all of our investments, uh, with with the exception of the house, are effectively in the stock market. Um, putting aside, um, what would I say? Like you know, rainy day funds. Basically, we have. We have funds that can survive us for some time, um, which we think is plenty. And beside that, everything's basically invested. Uh, that's that's how I roll. Um, does that work for somebody else? I don't really know. Um, mm. effect, effectively, as I said, this goes back to the same thing. Effectively, if you are tolerant, if somebody's tolerant of volatility, then I think investing it makes sense. I'm I'm happy to tolerate the volatility. Mm. Uh, if somebody is not, then I think they would need to keep more, uh, just f- for their comfort. But yeah, I mean, uh, I, again, if somebody uh, looking out, I feel that you know, putting the money in asset that is going to deliver the most return mm-hmm. um, relative to the risk makes. Uh, sense to me that's, yep. that, that would be my answer makes sense to me I can't do any better than that other than again I think shares are going to probably be the best performing asset over the next 50 years um, given your time horizon is until you die I see no reason to limit or artificially reduce the amount of uh, liquidity or the shares you're having within your account um, but if you're going to do that as I said um, just again bear in mind every decision you make on that has a, a potential return issue or, or risk or downside which is cool um, and again, it may be the best thing for you guys as a couple and as a family. Uh, just be mindful that, that is an implication, right? So the less you've got in shares, generally speaking, no guarantees because we don't know what the future holds. But in the past, the less you had in shares, the lower your returns have been. So think about how you do that. He says, we have no other debts. Our tiny unit is nearly paid off. Well done. It was hard to get to this financial point, but worth it. Now, this is kind of a cool cool part of the story, man. He says, I'm a migrant. My high school graduating gift was not a sports car. Um, but I inherited $2,000 debt in dental costs and then needed to buy a vehicle to get to work. That's a lot of debt for an 18-year-old with no savings. My folks had no extra money, hence no mum and dad bank. Mum was a saver, although we had very little. Dad, who never finished high school, earned and spent as much as mum would let him. Neither had an idea about investing. None. Zero. Zilch. Dad got dudded with his super, as his money was with a commercial provider that bled his account dry bastards. Mum's government account by comparison kept accruing. Neither parent could speak English before leaving our home country. Buying a house was their dream for the new country and they set about doing that and achieved it. That is very, very cool. I'm, I'm kind of getting goosebumps reading this actually, Doc, which is kind of fun. They succeeded in ways not possible in their homeland and they remained forever grateful for the opportunities offered in Australia. A good reminder for us when we whinge about how good or bad things are in this country. I graduated from university, then with a modest hex debt, huge for me at the time, and again, the need to buy another vehicle to get to work. I lived at home during uni so I could walk to campus and my parents supported me. 
My wife and I have paid off our small apartment and saved every penny we want to invest, but it's frightening as I've not had anyone to teach me what to do. I find many finance people a bit off-putting, not you fools though, they seem to be in a bubble and disconnected from what life is like for the majority of people, i.e. no savings, large debts and living paycheck to paycheck. I'm astounded that I can earn money from buying and holding stocks than going to work for the day. I find that by the concerning, sorry, I find that concerning as the people I grew up with work so hard for their small incomes and now by doing very little, I, we who have spare cash can get money for doing very little. My wife doesn't really want to discuss investing as she's aware of the exploitative nature of capitalism and is very sensitive about it. But I want us to be financially secure as we age. My wage alone and interest on savings won't help much towards our retirement income. I don't ever want to return to living hand to mouth. What I like about you fools is your optimism, desire to help and thoughtful responses to questions. Here's the challenge, mate. Given that, I'm surprised you fools continue to promote Apple and Amazon to name but two companies who are arguably not very ethical. They are terrible corporate citizens who pay a pittance in taxes, which I would argue transfers wealth from the many to the few. I actually think companies should pay no tax and the taxes should be paid on all income or expenditure and assets, but that's for another day. Here's question five. How do you rationalize promoting companies that exploit workers, pay them so little, offer harsh working conditions and exploit communities, and brackets seek huge concessions to set up in a town and then disappear when the agreements end, and pay effective tax rates of less than a few percent. And kind of question six is the same. How can that be good for individuals, communities, and the environment? Let's start with uh, let's start with question five. How do you rationalize Apple, mate, or Amazon when they pay little tax, exploit their workers, and demand huge concessions to do business? Oh boy, <laughs> that's a tough one. Okay, <laughs> so first of all, I think I'll not put Apple and Amazon in the same bucket. I own both of those shares and I read enough about what they do. Um, it is true that uh, so the working condition for an average Amazon employee is actually significantly harder than the working condition for an average Apple employee, yes. And I think what she's putting, mm-hmm. what, uh, what our listener is putting here is the average contractor that Apple is using for building stuff. But that's, you know, that's, that's a different thing. It's not really Apple employees that they're contracted out to somebody else. Now here's, this might appear uh, counterintuitive, but here's the thing. Um, what I think we need to realize, and I'm saying this as, as exactly as a migrant to this country, beautiful country, um, and having seen, for example, what happens in India or in the subcontinent, it is important to realize that when a foreign company goes and sets up shop, and even if they're paying pittance, which is pittance relative to what we would pay here, that pittance is actually a lot of money there. And that does lift up the standard of living. Right? And the very fact that there have been so many manufacturing things set up in China is what has actually lifted China up to what it is today. So therefore, it's a little bit of it's a little bit of how you know wealth transfer in in some sense happens. That's what capitalism is. They can do something at a lower cost compared to us, and therefore we want them to do that. And if they do that, it lifts up their standard. Now today, you know, China is talking about competing in in on AI, right? That's how we lift uh, lift the game. Um, so I I'm not really uh, against that in that sense. I think the companies also do a lot of good things, like for example, sustain you know support sustainability projects, mm-hmm. you know. Apple, for example, is committed to using 100% renewable energy for all its, um, um, you know, all its usage. They've been doing that for some time. I know Microsoft has committed to going carbon carbon negative. So, I mean, companies do they uh, they do they take stances on things that. Um, uh, are useful and relevant for citizens. For example, you know, Apple has a stand on privacy. Microsoft has other stands that they take. So I think 
it's not all dark. Yes, they do, you know, the taxation thing. So there is tax avoidance in terms of the fact that, you know, they might not be paying local taxes or appropriately because they do transfer Either they pay, you know, uh, basically pay for royalty of the IP, and that results in transfer here and there. But that's an international issue. That's not necessarily specific to Apple, Amazon, or any particular company. It is more of an international issue as to as the world becomes more global. How do you deal with taxation, right? Mm-hmm. And this is what I think everybody's right now, uh, you know, grappling with is how do you tax people on this? You know, there, there could be many solutions for that. You know, we could probably not tax anyone and just tax people for the services that they consume. That's that's the solution, right? You just you have a service tax and not have tax for anything else, right? And that addresses it. And I think to to large extent, service taxes, for example, you know, address the taxation issue, right? If you're consuming a service, you pay tax for that. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't, you know, I think I look at the positive side. Um, a lot of innovation happens because of businesses. Businesses create jobs, right? You know, the Apple created the computer, created the iPhone, created the App Store. The App Store resulted in, you know, all these other businesses being created. The whole sharing economy runs on basically the the fact that there was an App Store and somebody created the opportunity. So I think mm-hmm. we forget what we get. I think that, you know, and we should not lose sight of that. And I think capitalism in a way... Um, it takes the world forward. Yes, is capitalism the best solution? <laughs> is it perfect? No, it's probably the better solution of mm. the lot. Is is my view? Yeah, I'm going to try and tackle this one only because I feel like I have a couple of things to say, and then we'll wrap this episode up. I um, so here's the thing. I agree with almost everything Doc said. I think Winston Churchill said democracy was the worst system of government except for every other system that had been tried. Um, I've in the past already um, lifted that phrase and talked about democratic capitalism because I think both together are particularly important in, in the Western world. And I think, to me, for all of its flaws, it is still better than everything else that's been tried, including you know different versions of socialism and communism. There are some wonderful systems that work well in theory. I would love, frankly, to think that a, a, you know, a world where everyone had everything they needed and as much of everything they needed and everything was wonderful, I think that that would be the utopia that we would all choose. Um, the problem is it doesn't actually work. And so there's kind of that reality of like, Okay, here's what I'd like to be true. <laughs> Given it's not, here's the next best idea. And that's kind of a bit crappy. Like if you're someone who believes, it sounds like your wife doesn't, it sounds like you do as well. Um, question, I won't use your name. Um, you know, given given all that, I get how you would desperately want that to be true, as would I. It's just not. And so you kind of got to live in the real world a little bit. Now, that doesn't for a second excuse anything that's done to exploit workers or treat people badly. I think there should absolutely be higher wages paid internationally. There should be better working conditions internationally. And I think we should support... Frankly, if, you, if you're that way inclined, human rights groups to actually improve those things. And yes, put some pressure on companies to improve those as well. Doc is dead right. It has absolutely been fundamental to improving living standards in China for China to become the world's factory. Now, there's people working 12-hour days, six-day weeks. I think that's really, really terrible. And I would choose to have that change. I would like to think the Apples and the Microsofts and the everyone else's, this is not Apple bag, um, would absolutely be trying to enforce a version of Western standards on those companies. Now, at some level, if Apple doesn't does do that and says, "Look, I want to pay everyone double and have them work half as much," and their competitors don't, Apple's products become all of a sudden completely, um, you know, cost prohibitive. If an iPhone all of a sudden costs two thousand dollars, and a, an appropriate Samsung alternative was four hundred dollars because they worked people seven days a week, forty hours a day, then at some point, Apple's efforts come to nothing because no one buys any more Apple phones. The, the company goes out of business, and the ex- more exploitative companies carry on. So there's just there's like. It's one of those really messy realities. Like, you know, again, a perfect world, would it be the case? No. But given we are in this world and this life, you kind of got to – it's kind of the imperfect, pragmatic 
solutions we need to be looking for. So I would love to think these guys can be part of a solution. I'd like to think they could work harder at it. I absolutely include Apple in that. I include Amazon in that, by the way, in terms of in the US where they have some unhappy workers. Maybe they're pushing their workers a little bit too hard. I don't think it costs anything to be a little bit kinder, a little bit more reasonable. Um, you know, it's not that hard, particularly when you have that sort of market power to do some of that stuff. So I think that's what I'd, what I'd say first. Second thing, tax-wise, I completely agree with you. I think these companies are paying so little in tax, I would absolutely change the tax laws in Australia and around the world. I would also, though, uh, make sure those tax laws were properly, um, uh, what's the right word, followed through on. Um, we know there are companies like miners that have so-called marketing hubs in Singapore because they pay less tax there. It's a paper transaction that lets them pay less tax in Australia. And you're right, you and I pay more tax or get less services because they do that. And that is absolutely inappropriate. So I would absolutely change that. Again, though, back in the real world, to Doc's point, if a company can simply move their operations, some can't, by the way, you can't get your iron or anywhere else. So I think the miners should absolutely be a first target of any government looking to maximize their, their revenue and not, again, to punish anyone, just to actually tax them what they're supposed to be paying. Uh, but I would absolutely be going to those companies saying, hey, guys, enough's enough, time to pay up. Also, some of the online companies, there may be, a, I think, frankly, at some level, and you kind of allude to this, a need for, and we're getting into public policy here at some level, but a need for a broader or higher GST to make sure that if you're a, a company selling, and I'll use Netflix here, if you're a company selling subscriptions in Australia, you pretend the sale is made in America or the Cayman Islands, you say all your costs are over there too, and so you can sell you know millions and billions of dollars worth of services here, pretend there's no tax, no profit made here because all the costs are allegedly overseas, and as a society, we've got to say, well, hang on, are we comfortable to spend many, many tens, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of um, you know Australian consumer dollars here and get no tax benefit, no societal benefit from that? I think it's reasonable to say that we should be capturing more of that revenue in some way, shape, or form in Australia. Otherwise, we're leaking tax revenue from the blockbuster here or the the, the greater union cinema chain up to an overseas player who takes all the money and pays not enough tax. So there are there are ways that government should respond to that. I don't know, frankly, that any company should be obliged to pay more tax than they otherwise have to, right? That's the way the tax laws are written. If you write a tax law that says company A can pay tax or get these tax deductions and they're entitled to claim those. I have no problem with companies paying as little tax as they're legally required to because that's the way the laws are written. If the laws are wrong, it's up to our governments to fix them, not companies to say voluntarily say, oh, right, okay, fine. I'm, I'm not paying as much tax as I, you know, I'm paying as much as I have to, but I probably should pay more, so here's a donation. I just don't think that's reasonable or likely, not because I'm a capitalist, not because I want my companies to pay less tax, just because that's kind of the way this works, right? No shareholder should want their company to pay more tax than they have to. It's the government's job to say, hey, guys, time to fess up and pay up a bit more in cash. So I don't like that Amazon push their workers too hard in, in the US. I don't like that Apple and their compatriots push their Chinese workers too hard, pay them not enough, give them crappy conditions. I would like that to improve, but I'm pragmatic about how that happens. And I'm not entirely convinced that as investors, a bit like the ethical investing problem, if I invest, don't invest in Apple and Amazon and I invest in some other company, Apple's behavior doesn't change. Right? As a consumer, I can change that. As an investor, back to that ethical investing thing, it just makes literally zero difference. As much as we wanted to, as much as we might get upset, angry, aggravated about it, it just doesn't matter. And that's kind of, again, maybe it sucks, maybe it doesn't, but that's just the reality of the world we're living in. He finishes off, Doc, by saying, I know this is personal. Feel free to skip the question. We didn't. As I understand, we all need to invest in companies that help us sleep well at night. I hope you get a sense that I do deeply appreciate what you two and the rest of the foolish people do for us non-finance people. Cheers and fool on. I don't know about you, Doc, but I reckon that's a pretty good way to finish the podcast. I think that's a brilliant way to finish the podcast. With one exception, because it's a good deal on your service, Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. And you can get access to that by going to fool.com.au forward slash e 
EO for Extreme Opportunities, EO Podcast. One of the special deals we've got from our bosses at The Motley Fool, who set these prices and make these deals, but I reckon it's a pretty good one. And if you like what Doc has to say, don't do it just because he's here, but you can if you want. Do it because he's going to help you get great investment returns, a good investment education, and again, do what you want with that money. Compound it, give it away, give it to the kids, spend it on a really, really expensive overseas holiday if you want. But if you want to invest well, there are very few better ways to do it, in my view, than joining Motley Fool Opportunities by going to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. And that does wrap us up. But before we go, make sure you subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app, as I want to say from time to time. And, <coughs> excuse me. And I'm sure you, you like what we're doing. You can give us a five-star rating on iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app, as I like to say. Just throw some stars. Give us a review. Tell us a tell your friends. Just turn to the person next to you right now on the train, in the bus, at the beach, in the office. Say, hey, particularly Adrian before who's listening while he's at work. Just turn, turn, turn someone beside you, no matter if you don't know them or not. So just tap on the shoulder say, hi, I'm um, whatever your name is, Fred. I think you really would appreciate the Motley Fool Money podcast on Triple M. Look it up. Go on, do it. I know you want to. Of course, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash Triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of foolish insight. Have the rest of a good rest of your weekend and full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.